How's everybody this evening? Oh, I'm peachy. <clears throat> We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 50. So if you want to open up in your Bibles with me. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 50, and we're going to be continuing to talk about the servant. Now, remember in Isaiah, there are <clears throat> there's a, three or four different people that Isaiah refers to as servant. One is the nation of Israel. Uh, one is Messiah. One is Cyrus. Um, and in the section that we're in, probably through uh, 53 and, and maybe a bit into 54, we're going to be focused in on Messiah. The servant. We're going to see in the description. Uh, it's. I always say it's easier when we talk about prophecy. When we look back at fulfilled prophecy, it's easy to see. We look forward at unfulfilled prophecy. Sometimes it's a little more challenging, right? How do all the pieces come together? But when we look at uh, what the Lord lays out for us in Isaiah 50 uh, about the Messiah, there are some definitely some things that uh, should catch our eye. So he begins. In this section, we start with a, a message from the Lord through Isaiah to the people about their unbelief. The people had this idea that uh, God had just abandoned them. That uh, there, there was uh, no, no, nothing that they had done, just, just all of a sudden God wasn't there anymore. And so the Lord's going to deal with this attitude. And the point that God's going to bring out to them is that He does have the will and the power to deliver. But he wants from them their trust, their hope, you know, that they, they, they would come to him rather than complain to him. We're going to see it. He says in verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and your transgressions your mother was sent away. So he's asking them to, to present the, the bill of sale for their slavery. You know, sometimes they, we can find ourselves in the circumstances of life just thinking that God's putting us through something to torture us. Like, uh, you know, he doesn't care. And so he sold me into slavery. This is what they're saying. Or... Uh, on the other hand, they would say, well, you know, he just, he divorced the mother, our mother. The mother of the, of the nation was the, was the nation itself. Like we would say, uh, if we spoke of our own nation, uh, Zion. Uh, God's turned his back on Zion, our mother. The nation is, is uh, going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be brought down. And so the attitude of the people, they're just being ditched. God is ditching us. He's not there for us. And what God wants them to understand is the dividing line for them was their iniquity and their transgression. Iniquity is sin. Transgression is what we do when we know we're not supposed to do that. The Bible tells us that Eve was deceived, but Adam transgressed. What Scripture means by that is Eve was deceived by the serpent, and Adam knew full well what he was doing. When you know full well what you're doing, the Bible calls it transgression. You know you ought not to have done that. Iniquity is like an over, uh, overarching term. It's f for just sin 
in general. It's you were, these things have happened to you because of your sin. These things have happened to you because of your transgression. The reason why God divorced the nation, in other words, He lifted His protection from off of the nation of Israel, and the nation of Israel will be conquered. Again, this is prophetic, so it hadn't happened yet. The reason all those things happened was because of their sin and transgression. The Bible tells us that if I regard iniquity in my heart, He doesn't hear me. If I'm holding on to my sin, it creates a point of distinction between me and God. And then I find myself under God's discipline or judgment. What's the purpose of that? Well, it's not just to destroy me. At least that's not what Hebrews says. Hebrews tells us that discipline is not, is not something any of us look forward to or enjoy. But the purpose is to bring us to a place of repentance. But you see, the people are busy blaming God for their problems. God didn't really love us. God, you you really missed the boat on this one. Where were you? And so often, that's how we think of our problems. That's how we think of our troubles. We think, God, what happened? What happened to all the promises in Scripture? Aren't you supposed to give me, you know, all the things I want? And the Lord is telling the people, look, guys, it is your iniquity and your transgression That has brought you to this place, the place where they were. In Isaiah 40, verse 27, they said this, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my right is disregarded by my God? So the Lord was asking them in in Isaiah chapter 40, He was saying, Why do you guys say that, that I don't know what's going on, that I've just closed my eyes to your problems? But all the while, through God's prophets, God is calling the people to an attitude of repentance. To turn from their sin. We're we're fooling ourselves if we think God's going to turn this nation around without repentance. That's not happening. There needs to be repentance. We We can pray and we can call on His name and we, the people of God, ought to be doing those things. But at the same time, we ought to be holding up our nation in an attitude of repentance, pleading forgiveness, because we're guilty. We're guilty as a nation before a holy God. So he said, don't say I don't see, and don't say that I'm not looking after you. Remember, this is God's chosen people, and they're saying, here the pagans are coming to take us away. Obviously, God is not, he's not really there for us. And if we're honest, sometimes that's how we think. But what the Lord declares in verse 1 is, no, it's your sin, it's your sin. In Isaiah 49, verse 14, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. Ever felt like that? God, why? Now we may not get our whys answered. That's probably the first lesson we learn when we study the book of Job. You may not get your why answered. But you will get an understanding of the who. Who is the Lord? Does He care? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And He's working and moving and He's accomplishing things maybe we can't understand. In fact, in Habakkuk, to the prophet Habakkuk, the Lord said, If I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't believe me. 
I'd say that's probably pretty accurate, don't you think? If the Lord told us, if, for example, when we're looking here at Isaiah 50 and he's going to start talking about his servant and the coming of Messiah and the suffering of Messiah, they'd have never believed it. In fact, today, if you come with us to Israel and you go to the Wailing Wall, the rabbis will be doing a school out in front and they'll be reading Torah and they'll be there. And if you get a chance to talk to somebody and you can ask them, they'll answer your questions. They'll even ask you some. You sit there and get a chance to talk to them. Why don't you believe Jesus Messiah? Because he suffered and died. He never, he never kicked Rome out. He never delivered the people. They don't believe it. They don't see it. They can't understand it. So here's what God says in verse 2. He says, well then, why does no one respond to this invitation to trust in me? My grace, my power. Trust me. This was the big lesson for Jeremiah. Jeremiah, which is going to be a little further on in history from Isaiah. In Jeremiah's time, the events Isaiah talked about are actually happening. Babylon's conquered. The people are being taken. God told Jeremiah, tell the people, stop fighting. Tell them, stop fighting. Go as slaves to Babylon and live a good life. God said, you don't have to die. Why should you die, Israel? Just stop. So Jeremiah would preach that message and nobody would listen. And so people would die and people would starve and people would suffer because... They would not trust in the grace and power of God. Because God was able to deliver them through the exile. He was not going to deliver them from the exile. But they just couldn't see. Sometimes we catch ourselves doing what Paul did. You remember what the Lord said to Paul? Isn't it hard for you to kick against the goats? You ever notice all your efforts are, you're putting all this effort and getting nowhere? I remember a story somebody told me one time about the Lord coming down and he spoke to a man. And he said, listen, I need you to do something for me. And the man, of course, wanted to do something to serve the Lord. And the Lord said, okay, what I want you to do is I want you to go over that rock and I want you to push it. And the man said, all right, I'm going to go push that rock. So the Lord left and the man went over and pushed the rock. Days turned into weeks, weeks to months. That rock never moved. He pushed and he pushed and he pushed and he became more discouraged and more discouraged and more discouraged until he was having a hard time even going showing up to push the rock anymore. And one day the Lord came to him. And the man said, Lord, I'm a failure. You gave me something to do, but I can't do it. And the Lord said, I never told you to move it. I told you to push it. See, sometimes we just miss the point. Sometimes we miss the the thing that God's doing. We are so arrogant that we think we got all the pieces figured out. That's what drives me crazy about talking to people who are very politically motivated. Because they're pretty sure they got it all figured out. I lived through Reagan. Most of you guys did too. Yeah, that was not the golden age of the United States of America. 
We didn't have it all solved then neither. And we don't have it all solved now. We're moving in a positive direction, perhaps. But again, God's people need to fall on their knees in an attitude of repentance and trust in God's power to save. God's grace to give. And this is what the Lord is telling us in verse 2. Look, He says, Why when I came was there no man? Why when I called was there no answer? The Lord is saying, look, I'm, I'm, it's, it's just exactly like when the Lord came to the garden looking for Adam. You guys remember? Adam and Eve had eaten of the fruit and the Lord came because they, he always walked with them in the cool of the evening. Remember? And the Lord comes and he says, hey, Adam, where are you at? Is that because God doesn't know? Adam, where are you? Oh, I'm hiding in a bush. I fear, Adam, I always think this. If you were just going to say, I'm here hiding in the bush, what was the point of hiding in the bush? Right? And we, The Lord says, I came and I called. He didn't come and He called for Adam because Adam was so amazing and God couldn't imagine Adam would ever screw up. Right? He came because He's the answer. His grace, His power to deliver, to forgive, to restore. All of those things. So God says, where, where, where was everyone when I came? Instead of trying to blame God and say, God, you're the reason why we're going through all these things. You don't love us enough. You don't care about us enough. <coughs> God's coming and calling. And they don't trust Him. They won't trust that He is able. So He says, Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Am I, am, am I not able? Is God not compassionate and merciful, able to touch and anoint and, and do the things that, that God has promised? He's saying, look, am I able to do this? For sure. For sure God is able. But what it requires is humility. Boy, is that hard for us to stick out, isn't it? It's hard for us to say, I don't know. We'd rather be the guy who has all the answers, no? Oh, just do this. Yeah. That's another thing that drives me crazy. As though if, 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 if you just listen to, you know, little Johnny's answer, everything would go away. Well, are you sure about that? Yep, I know. If you just gra- reach down and grab a hold of them boots, pull yourself up. Uh, that don't work. God's saying, look, come to me. Come to me. Not come to me blaming me, but come to me humbly asking for restoration, forgiveness. I need forgiveness for my sins. I need forgiveness for my sinful attitudes, for the times when I find myself out of whack. I need to stand before a holy God and admit I'm guilty. And say, Lord, you know what? Yep, I'm a mess. Help me. Those are the people. That's why when Paul comes to the Lord and he says, Lord, why have you given me this messenger of Satan to buffet my flesh? Right? The thorn in the flesh. Why, Lord? Take this away from me. Three times he said, I asked the Lord. And God said, no. My strength is made perfect when you're weak. 
And the only time it really works is when you know you're weak. When you're willing to kneel in humility and say, help. Help me. This is what God's looking for from from his people. And then he reminds them, listen, he says, behold, my rebuke. I dry up the sea. How did they get out of Exodus? Remember when they were at Pihahiroth and Migdol between a rock and a hard place, a Red Sea in front of them? Who dried up the sea? That was God. When they needed something to drink in a desert, who was it that made a river out of the desert? That was God. When he turned the water to blood in Egypt and all their fish died and everything stunk, who was that? That was God. God and His power to deliver. God and His power to provide and protect. And then in verse 3, He says, I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. Who is it that put creation? The Bible tells that God created the universe in the span of His hand. But the idea is like He reached down and grabbed some dust and threw it in the air. And Bam, there's the heavens. And God's so big, the universe that we can't measure, He measures by the span of His hand. That's a big God. A big God who is able to deliver. A big God who who is able to provide the power necessary. And so first, He begins this section in chapter 50 of of reminding the people, look, I haven't forgotten you. I'm actually saving you. You just don't know it. I'm actually saving you from the, the, the greatest enemy you've ever battled against. And so in verse 4, we, we see the turn now to the servant. And the servant's submission to the Father. Listen, listen to what he says. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. That I might know how to sustain with a word him who is worthy. Weary, that I might know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. He's, he's the one, this servant, that we're talking about now in, in verse 4. This servant is saying, God has given me the tongue that has been well taught. I have a right word in season and in out. I'm always ready to say what the Father has given me to say. To do what the Father has given me to do. John 3.17 declares, For God did not send His Son to the world to condemn the world. He didn't come. We're already condemned. We're already guilty. We're already broken. He came in order that the world might be saved through Him. See, people are complaining about all the things they're going through. And God is saying, all these events that you are going through is bringing about your redemption. Messiah is coming. This is all part of that purpose. And when He comes, He's going to be able to save not only you, but anyone who will call on His name. Matthew eleven twenty eight. listen to what Jesus said. Come unto me, all ye labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you, what does he say? Rest. 
Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I know how to sustain him with a word who is weary. This servant of the Lord. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Morning by morning we see this servant in a unique type of communion with the Lord God Almighty, so much so that he's always ready to give the right word, always has the right thing to say, always says what the Father gives him to say, this servant who is coming. And then they, he contrasts that. <clears throat> he's saying, okay, here's the servant, and the one who's always ready to speak my word and do the things I'm asking him to do. And he's always ready to give the right word for the right time for the one who needs it. He says in verse 5, for the Lord God has opened my ear. The Lord God has opened my ear. There's two ways to look at it. Remember I told you a couple of weeks ago. Opening of the ear can speak about our ability to hear and understand. And the opening of the ear can also stand for having the the ear pierced piercing your ear putting a hoop in your ear signified that you were the slave of whomever pierced your ear the one who opened my ear i serve him and in context in this verse listen to what he says i was not rebellious i'm not gonna bucket i'm not gonna push against it i'm walking wherever he wants me to go I'm his. Whatever you need. Whatever you need, I'm your man. When we think about other prophets, it's hard to find one that would foot this bill. Y'all remember Jonah. Well, that didn't work, right? Jonah tried to run the other way. Remember? God sent him to Nineveh. He ran. What about Moses? Probably considered one of the greatest prophets of the people. Yet when God called him, Moses said, nope, I don't want to go. I got a stuttering problem. My lips are thick. I trip over my tongue. Something, right? Moses said, no, no, until God got mad. Do you remember? Who made man's mouth? I always love that. That's my favorite part in the Prince of Egypt. When God speaks get all goosebumpy. Oh, there's God. What about Jeremiah? Jeremiah didn't want to do what God wanted so bad. He quit. He quit. He stood right up in front of God and said, I quit. Not going to tell nobody nothing no more. They don't listen anyway. Can't be him. This one, this prophet has to be different than all the other prophets this one never rebels against what god tells him to do this one in the garden of getsmone will say nevertheless it is not about me it is about you not my will be done yours in John eight twenty nine it says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, 
For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. This is the servant. The Messiah. Mashiach Nagid. The Messiah. The king. So what will this do? He's contrasting. Okay, you guys who say I'm not ever there for you. And, I, and I'm, not, uh, I'm not watching out for you. And I don't care about you. I've forgotten you. I've forsaken you. But yet when I call for you, nobody's there to answer. Nobody's asking me. Nobody's coming to me for their deliverance. But he says there is a servant coming. He's going to say everything I tell him to say. And he's going to do everything I tell him to do. And he is going to suffer like you can't even believe just in case the nation of Israel thinking about their exile and the hard road that they've had to hoe, how hard life has been for them. God says, I have a servant coming who's going to say what I tell him to say, do what I ask him to do, and he'll suffer worse than any of you have. Hebrews will say, yet he learned obedience through the things he suffered. He just walked that walk before him. It says in Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. And I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. He's referring to the scourging, the beatings, spitting, the derision that was poured out upon this servant who is the most obedient, non-rebellious, submitted servant ever pictured. The servant who is going to work the plan of redemption out for mankind. In Matthew 27, verse 26, it says, Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus... I'm always amazed by how that's just so matter-of-fact. Having scourged Jesus, just one simple statement, right? Having scourged him. That, that is the idea of whooping a man until he confesses all his guilt. Most of the time that didn't work out so good. Either you were quick and you said... I'd done this, and I'd done this, and I'd done that. And they probably didn't have too many unsolved crimes, because I'd confess to it all if they are beating me like they were beating Jesus. I did it. Stop hitting me. But what's the Bible say? As a lamb is sent before his shears and is silent, so he opened not his mouth. They scourged him. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus in the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. That's a lot of soldiers with nothing to do. I've been in service to this nation. And I can tell you the scariest place to be is with a bunch of soldiers who have nothing to do. Because we will find something to do. Sometimes it's not so bad. Sometimes it's really bad. Here in this case, you got a bunch of soldiers gathered around him with nothing to do. So they stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand as though it was his scepter. And they knelt before him and mocked him and said, Hail the king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and they struck him in the head. And when they had mocked him and stripped him of the robe 
and put his own clothes on him, they led him away to crucify him. Scripture says of this servant, he said, I gave my back. You think anybody could hit him if he didn't want or was not willing? Think anybody could pull out his beard if he didn't want or was not willing? The example of utter submission to, the, to a holy God is the example of Jesus Christ. It's being contrasted with the people who are busy complaining that God's not been there for them. Jesus is going to say words like that, isn't he? On the cross, he's going to say, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, what's that all about? Oftentimes, when a rabbi was teaching his students, he would give them the first verse of the chapter he wanted them to go study. That's the first verse from Psalm 22. And it describes a crucifixion 800 years before a crucifixion was invented. He's not declaring God's not with me. He's wanting them to understand what's happening on the cross. You want to know? Read Psalm 22. It's all there. All laid out for Jesus' disciples to be able to recognize. In John 10, 17, it says, For this reason the Father loves me. Listen to this. For this reason the Father loves me. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life. Because I walk in submission before a holy God and I say, I trust you while the men are scourging me. While they spit in my face. While they pluck out my beard. I say, I trust you, God. I trust you, Father. I lay my life down so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I give it of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Then he goes on. Talks about the strength that he, this servant, will receive from the Lord. It says in verse 7, But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. The idea of shame and disgrace in the Bible is, is the idea that after having chosen a particular road, you get to the end of that road and find out, I took the wrong path. That's what it means to be shamed or disgraced. But he says, I'm not disgraced. There's no, there's no disgrace. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. Set my face like flint. And I know I will not be put to shame. This is the road of salvation. This is how creation will be atoned for. Atonement will be made for the world. 1 John 2, 2, he became the propitiation, the substitute for who? The world. For the world. He says, so I have set my face like flint 
In Luke 9, 51, speaking of Jesus, it said, When the days drew near for Him to be taken up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. He set His face like flint. Hard. I'm going to the cross. Every step I take takes me one step closer he says, it's the Lord who helps me. It's the Father who directs him. Verse 8, he says, he who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? He said, the Father's with me. Let us stand up together. Who's my adversary? Let him come near to me. Who can accuse him of sin? Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment and the moth will eat them up. Where are his accusers now? They're gone. Reminds me of what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, speaking of those who have been justified, who have placed their trust, their hope in God. So what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How many? Interesting, no? Gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, he was raised and is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In Isaiah 50, the suffering servant says, who will contend with me? Who, who will bring a charge against me? No one. So what is the point? What is the purpose? What is the call for us? The call for us is to obey the voice of the servant. Look what he says in verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? In verse 10, he he compares the fear of the Lord with obeying the voice of the servant. In other words, the fear of the Lord equals obeying the voice of the servant. That servant, the Messiah, the Mashiach Nagid, the fear of the Lord is to obey Jesus Christ. Go into every nation making disciples of all men. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them the things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you. Even unto the end of the age. The obedience of the voice of the servant and the fear of the Lord is the same thing. Look what else he gives in this comparison. Let him who walks in darkness... And has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. In this comparison, you're also the idea of walking in darkness. If you walk in darkness, you have no light. If you want light, what do you do? Trust in the name of the Lord your God. Trust in him. What if I'm trusting in him and I'm going to exile? What's that got to do with it? What does our circumstances have to do with trusting God? Absolutely none. Nothing. Has nothing to do with it. Will you trust Him? 
Though you slay me, Job said, I will trust you. Though you kill me, Job said, I will trust you. You are my hope. You are my deliverance. The fear of the Lord and the obedience of the voice of the servant. Obeying the servant is like walking in the light, trusting in the Lord God. Behold, he says, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. He's saying to him, listen, walk by the light. Walk by the light of your fire, by the torches you have kindled. If you do that, if you do this your way, you're walking by your light, you're walking by your fire. You're not walking by the light of the Lord. You're not trusting in Him. Then you can understand this one thing. You'll lie down in torment. Stop. Walk in the light of the Lord. Obey the voice of His servant. Put your hope and trust in Him. Now this all reminds me, as I look at this, it all reminds me of of something that Moses said in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, we have the second telling of the law, and and it's built around several discourses or... uh, Sermons that Moses preaches. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, here's what Moses says to the people. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. You're going to listen. You're going to want to listen to this prophet. You're going to want to listen to this one. Where's he coming from? Your brothers. He's going to be Jew. He's going to come from within the nation. Verse 16, Just as you desired the Lord God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. Remember Moses and all the people are standing before Mount Horeb, and God spoke to the people the Ten Commandments. And the people freaked out. Just like everybody does when they hear the voice of the Lord God Almighty. And so they said, we we can't hear this no more. Moses, you go talk to him. We want an intercessor, somebody between us and God. Moses, you're the guy. We want you to stand between us and God. We're afraid. They were afraid. Just like you would be if you were standing before the Lord God Almighty and he began to speak to you. So they said, man, we need something between us. Need something between us that's too holy, too great, too awesome. We're too low. So they elected Moses to go up. But Moses is saying there will come another prophet that's going to fulfill what you're asking. There's another prophet that's going to come. So the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you. From among their brethren. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he will speak all that I command him. Every word I give him to speak. And whoever will not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. 
I will require it of him. This prophet who would stand in the gap between the people and God, who would be the intercessor, that's Jesus, the prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18. That's the servant of Isaiah 50, of Isaiah 49, of Isaiah 53. The suffering servant who would lay down his life, who will stand in the gap. So that when we come before a holy God, with the law of God laying out as the requirement, there is someone between us and God. His name is Jesus Christ. For no man comes to the Father except through me. Nobody gets to my dad. They got to come through me. I'm the only way. The only entrance. The only way in. Jesus said, I I am the door to the sheepfold. The sheepfold in those days would be a wall with no door in the opening. And the shepherds would put their sheep in and then they would all, however many shepherds had their sheep in there, they would all sleep at the opening so the sheep couldn't come out. Jesus said, I'm the door. If you don't come through me, you're a thief and a robber. The only guy jumping over the wall is trying to break the law, right? If somebody jumps over your fence at your house, they don't know how they're supposed to enter. Jesus said, I'm the door. I'm the way, the truth, the life. It's me. I'm the intercessor, the one who ever lives to make intercession for us. Isn't that what we read earlier? He is the suffering servant, the prophet that Moses talked about. He's the one that we need to obey. The words that we need to hear. So that we put our faith, our trust, our hope in Him. So that if the servant was to stand on the corner and said, I called, we would say, Yea, Lord, your servant hears. Not, I called and no one answered. I looked, but no one came. No, when he calls, we go. If he's the Lord, right? If he's not the Lord, then you do what you want. But if he's the Lord, when the Lord calls, his people say, yea, Lord, your servant hears. Here I am. Here I am to place my hope, my trust. God says to the nation, guys, look, you're going into captivity, but it's not because I hate you. It's not because I despise you. I'm ultimately working out a plan of redemption in your life. And in order for that plan of redemption to come to fulfillment, you have to go through the valley of the shadow of death. But you don't have to go through it alone. You don't have to feel forsaken and forgotten. God says, I didn't forsake you or forget you. I'm still here. Willing to walk with you in the cool of the evening. It's your transgression and iniquity that keeps you away. So God calls. Repent. And walk with him. You will not be put to shame. It will not be a wasted effort. Amen?
Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time, the opportunity we have to study your word, to come to your word, Lord God, as men and women willing to submit ourselves to the truth of your word and what your word is calling us to. God, we want to be obedient to you. We want to be obedient to what you said. For whoever will not listen to the word of Jesus Christ, God says, I will require it of him. He speaks my word. Lord, I pray that we would be obedient to him. Jesus was asked, well, what must I do to do the the works of God? And this is what he said. This is what you must do. Believe on him whom the Father sent. Put your trust in me. So God, I pray that be our heart tonight, Lord, to put our trust in you, our hope in you. For you are able to save to the uttermost. God, I pray that you would be glorified in this place as we look to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.